Welcome to the Boss Ladies Podcast. I'm Olivia Wary, and as a young female working in the industry of technology, I'm constantly struggling to find my voice and overcome challenges thrown my way. I've decided to have conversations with boss ladies in every industry to hear how they do it. Boss Ladies is intended to inspire women and men of all ages to overcome their fears, explore moonshot thinking, speak up for who they are and what they believe in, and move up in their respective industries. Every day we are faced with challenges, so it is my intention to empower you to get the advice you need by interviewing top executives who have been through it all. On today's episode of Boss Ladies, please welcome Dr. Susan S. Fleming. Susan is an executive educator, angel investor, and corporate director. From 2010 to 2018, she was a senior lecturer at Cornell University, teaching women in leadership and entrepreneurship. She began her career on Wall Street, where she was a partner of Capital Z Financial Services Partners, a private equity fund focused on investing in financial services firms and an analyst at Morgan Stanley. After leaving Wall Street in 2003, Susan earned a PhD in management at Cornell University's Johnson Graduate School of Management, where her research focused on better understanding the factors contributing to a dearth of women in leadership positions in U.S. society. Susan has served on the board of seven publicly traded companies and is a current director of RLI Corp and Virtus Investment Partners, Inc. She's also a frequent speaker and executive educator on issues of gender bias and entrepreneurship. For more on Susan, see www.susansfleming.com. Welcome today, Susan. We are so excited to have you. So why don't you start by telling me a little bit about yourself? Currently, I live up in Ithaca, New York. Recently, for the last 10 years or so, uh, was a professor at the hotel school and the Johnson School, which is the Graduate School of Business, teaching a variety of courses, primarily around entrepreneurship and also women in leadership, um, but also have taught some finance courses and negotiation, um, ran a couple of competitions and things like that. And it, for people that know academia, it's fairly unusual to be so broad in terms of the kind of teaching a lot of variety of things, but that comes from the fact that this is actually my has been my second career being being in academia. I actually grew up in Blacksburg, Virginia. My dad was a professor at Virginia Tech, went to UVA, studied economics and East Asian studies, and then actually went to Wall Street, which funny enough, I didn't know that much about Wall Street. I didn't know much about investment banking. I went to Morgan Stanley in mergers and acquisitions. But I was super competitive by nature, and that appeared to be, upon graduating, one of the hardest jobs to get. So, of course, I wanted it, <laughs> which, which was a theme for me very much, especially early in my life. I'm still pretty competitive, but, but really was back then. And so I spent two and a half years at Morgan Stanley working in investing or really advising companies on mergers and acquisitions for financial services companies, but primarily insurance companies. And at the end of that, or in the middle of my third year there, I was headhunted to join a 500 and odd million dollar private equity fund that focused on uh, investing in buying and selling insurance companies. And so I joined that firm and it was a fabulous group of people, but me and seven guys, all of whom were older than me, (laughs) and again, had a great experience there. But it was it was an, it was interesting in that 
I definitely had to fit in to be somewhat one of the guys, but never really quite could. Um, that said, I did yeah. well and was supported and performed well and moved up. And at the end of that fund, we raised a second fund uh, that was much larger, combined with another team uh, from the Zurich Insurance Group, and created what's called Capital Z Partners, which was a private equity fund focused on more broadly investing in the financial services sector. So that was in 1998. And we invested that fund between 1998 and 2003, lived through the internet debacle, <laughs> the bubble. <laughs> um, so I got to live through the, 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 the beginning of it and the crash. Um, and, you know, we were a private equity fund, which means we were really set up to do larger investments, you know, in more mature companies. But like everyone else at the time, unfortunately, a good chunk of our firm decided to drink the Kool-Aid and we made a number of venture capital type investments. But, you know, at 20 million a pop, that's a dangerous thing to do. And so, um, as it turned out, by the end of 03, it hadn't been a real fun five years. Some of it was fun, but we had spent a lot of the back end of that cleaning up the portfolio. And there's a lot of battles going on within the firm during the decision to make those investments and in getting out of them. And so for me, even though I had actually become a partner by then, and again, have so much regard for all of the people I worked with and I'm very, very close and look up to a number of them as close friends and sponsors and mentors. I decided that I really wanted to do something else. And, and the way I think about that is that in retrospect is that people sort of have different reasons for working for a company. It might be for love of the mission or love of the people. It might be for love of the work because it's so intellectually stimulating, or it might be for money. And for me, I had all three of those at Morgan Stanley and in, especially in the first fund. And by the, by 2003, for me, given that I was really, it would have been more money because the culture of the firm I wasn't loving and the work I wasn't loving as much. And money was never why I was there. So I kind of quit private equity, which not very many people do. So um, I was kind of mucking around trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Starting back in 1998, I had joined a couple of publicly traded boards of directors as a representative of CapZ, who had major stakes in those companies. And so at the time I left, I was on three public company boards and I stayed on two of them and those are well compensated. So I was... And I'd saved a bunch of money. So I was sort of not under pressure to do anything particular. And I had the opportunity to think about what I wanted to do. It ended up that I started dating someone I'd known for a, a little while um, who was living in Ithaca and ended up moving up here and marrying him and having a child with him. And we did later divorce. But during that time, I was in Ithaca. He was working on his PhD. And I started exploring the possibility of teaching and concluded that to teach at the college level, I really needed a graduate degree. And because I was so far along in my career, I was 33 at the time, it didn't make sense to go back and get like an MBA because if anything, I would be teaching those courses. And so I pursued a PhD at the business school here at Cornell. And awesome. um, what was funny, yeah, I mean, 
I actually, and my dad had been a college professor, so that kind of, there was some linkage there. Um, mm-hmm. What was kind of funny is I actually, a lot of people like assumed that I would do a PhD in finance or something like that. And what I realized is that finance was really interesting and fun to do as a practitioner. But for me, theoretical finance held no interest. But what is really interesting to me and continues to hold my interest are humans. (laughs) And so I studied management organizations, which is basically organizational behavior. And my focus was on why there aren't more women in senior leadership positions in the business world. And, you know, I think I started my PhD in around 2005. And here we are in 2019. There's still not that many women in leadership positions in the business world <laughs> relative yeah. to population. Um, so I've been, I've been studying that and teaching on that. And, you know, as I said at the very beginning of this very long answer, because I have a bit of an odd background, that's how it came about that I was teaching entrepreneurship because I had done, you know, private equity and venture capital investing. I actually helped my ex-husband start a business I've done angel investing. And then I also had this whole other piece in management and along the way have been sitting on boards of directors the whole time. So learned a lot about, you know, strategy management, et cetera, and was able to pull those together in teaching courses on entrepreneurial management, entrepreneurial finance, along with, of course, my passion in in teaching about women in leadership. Yeah, that's an incredible and a very inspiring story. I mean, it's awesome that you really took a leap of faith and and left the private equity world to really pursue what you were passionate about. So that's really great. You said that you started on a team with seven men. Like Throughout your private equity career, did that number increase in terms of having female representation or was it really just all men for most of the... It was pretty much all men. And I, I should say that when we formed, I mean, there were there were non-investment professional, there were non-investment people like secretaries, which we called them back then, um, who were women, but it really fell down those lines. And when we formed Cap Z, Capital Z Partners, we had a private equity arm and then we had an arm that was called a funds of fund of funds, where people would make investment. Basically, they would invest in new and upcoming hedge funds and private equity funds. So they weren't direct doing private equity. And there were two women professionals on that side of the house. But in the the nine or 10 years that I was in private equity, we only ever had one other woman professional. And I hired her. And I'll just say this kind of with a big mea culpa right now. And it was something that was I only understood later. I was actually the the junior, the principal and then junior partner who was in charge of hiring associates. They called me the den mother because um, <laughs> I had all the, I, and, and I hired all men except for this yeah. one woman who I actually just saw recently. Like she and I are still great friends and she did really well there. But in retrospect, I was part of the problem. Like I was holding women to a higher standard because I knew how tough it could be to be a woman in that kind of environment. And, you know, I wasn't doing it on purpose, but in retrospect, I think I was part of the problem. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. So how, how is your personal experience of, of working in this environment of hiring people in this environment in a very male dominated world, like inspired your research and your work? I mean, hugely. So I think, what happened when I came up 
to Ithaca and then I started thinking about doing research, I started reading a number of books and research around gender bias and things like that. I was incredibly lucky to have Shelley Carell, who was a professor in sociology here at the time, allowed me to sit in and basically take her class as a non-student to check it out. And I also got to know Melissa Thomas Hunt, who was my doctoral chair. Um, incidentally, today, I'm very excited for her. Today, she was named the head of diversity for Airbnb. That is incredible. Yeah, she will have a huge impact. She's a woman of color. She's a preeminent researcher, has been running diversity at Vandermilt and previous to that at the University of Virginia at Darden and is a mom and a great human being. So, you know, I had these two amazing women that I got to know who allowed me to sort of think about doing research. And what happened was I read two pieces that particularly stuck out to me. One was Women Don't Ask, which was one of the early books that sort of pointed out the fact that women didn't negotiate on their own behalves as much. Mm-hmm. And, and when I read that book, I was like, oh, you mean I was supposed to be negotiating my salary and carry and bonuses all this time because <laughs> I hadn't, which is insane. Right. And I negotiated yeah. for a living, you know? So, and then I also read some work by the Diana Project, which is also still around, um, which looked at the representation of women in venture capital and the representation of women entrepreneurs. And it was dismal. I think it was in private equity and venture capital, women were, women made up about 9% of investment professionals. And as of a couple of years ago, it was only like 1% more, 1 point more. That may have changed since the Me Too movement. And we are seeing more women being hired, but it's only really recently. So those two things, I like to say that if you're going to do a PhD and you're going to research on something, it better hold your interest. And honest to God, reading that stuff made me foam at the mouth in anger, (laughs) excitement, and, and reading a lot of this information helped me go back and reinterpret and understand so much more of my experience on Wall Street. And I had a very good experience, but I had thick skin. I turned my, a blind eye to a lot of things that went on. And a lot of it, I just assumed I was the problem. And maybe some days I was, but a lot <laughs> of it, I wasn't. That experience has very much... I think, informed my desire to drive change. But it also has been very powerful, as is me continuing to be in the corporate world through my board work. It's also given me an understanding of maybe how to be effective in driving change and also really genuinely believe this is not an issue of men versus women or people who are ill-intentioned. Because most of my greatest sponsors and supporters throughout my career, frankly, have been men. Yeah. Mine too, honestly, up until this point. I mean, I'm I'm still like I've I've you know, I've been working for two years, but in these two years, a lot of my mentors, bosses, advisors have been mostly, if not I think all men. <laughs> yeah. I mean so. the the person I happen to be in a great group at Morgan Stanley at a time in MA where there was all kinds of nonsense going on. But the head of the FIG group, financial institutions group, Phil Duff, great Midwestern guy, high ethics, 
just wasn't going to put up with that. I was hired into private equity by Dan Doctoroff, who has had a legendary career, is an amazing human being. Just he believes in equality and just it wouldn't like I, I was hired and supported by people. And then at Cap Z, I had two amazing people that I work for in particular who are totally not politically correct, but have been very instrumentally supportive to me in recommending me for boards in they promoted me, you know, and so I'm grateful to all of those, all of those men. And it's not always obvious who the allies are, but Mm -hmm. if you pay attention and you kind of look through some of the, you know, the outward commentary, (laughs) you can actually find sometimes people, they actually really will be your ally. Yeah. And so some of those male mentors you've you've just mentioned, you know, what did they do to be great allies and what can other men do to be better at being allies in the workplace for women? Yeah, so I would say the things that they most did and it varies by the person, but sponsorship is hugely important. And what I mean by that is people often mix up mentorship and sponsorship. Mentorship is sort of a gift and people give you advice and they are supportive and that's important. And women have a lot of that from men and women. Sponsorship could be someone that is a mentor or they may not give you a ton of advice, but what they do is they use their own political capital to speak up and speak out and say, hire her, or we're backing her, or gee, you should, you should meet this person. Oh, you want her on your project. So they literally, you know, pull you up by their hand and put you out there. And it's, it takes some risk on their part. So men acting, being proactive in identifying and sponsoring women is critically important to help overcome that credibility gap that women often have due to unconscious bias about gender, about women's, you know, qualifications. A second thing I would say is being, again, proactive in giving women developmental opportunities and opportunities for leadership and and allowing them. So in order to become a leader, you have to claim leadership, but you also have to be granted it. And it's really stepping into a new identity for for any individual. And women kind of, they get cheated in that one, they're told by society, maybe you shouldn't be claiming that leadership position. And two, organizations and, and people above often are hesitant to grant it to them. And men can interrupt that. They're usually in the power position. And so if they think in those terms and they really give women opportunities, I think that that's important. And I benefited from both of those things. I think more today with a different environment, keeping in mind that I've been out of private equity for, you know, what is it, 15 years now? Mm -hmm. I think it's critically important that men speak up and call out bias and discrimination by others, but especially other men. When, when there's no women in the room, you know, just they don't have to be aggressive about it or confrontational, but just like, hey, that's not cool. You know, I didn't like that comment. Or yeah. there's some great research that shows that when women lead diversity initiatives that supporting gender initiatives to advance women, one, they're ex- sort of, it's sort of expected that senior women will take that on. And therefore, they don't get much credit and are actually sometimes penalized or viewed with suspicion because it's seen as self-interested. When men do it, people pay attention 
they get credit and they're more effective. So men need to take active leadership roles in diversity initiatives and, you know, really help support and drive HR processes and structures that will interrupt bias and support women in the workplace. I completely agree with with all of those points. Something you've alluded to already in this podcast, but something that is more explicitly stated in your in your research is that gender bias is not just a women's issue, but also a human issue. What do you mean by that? Well, I guess what I mean by that is two or three different things. So first is gen it's gender bias. It's not anti-woman bias, right? We call right. it gender bias. So I believe that first of all, we all have gender biases. Everyone, men, women, non-identifying, we all have grown up in societies that have very, very strongly held, known, and hard to avoid belief systems about the appropriate roles of men and the appropriate roles for women and the appropriate behaviors. And those are taught to us from infancy all the way through. And those biases tend to really hurt women more in the workplace, but they they put people in boxes and they put men in boxes. So, you know, we live in the society and most societies that say, oh, women should be the primary caregivers, men should be the primary breadwinners. And even though there's been blending and change in that, fundamentally, when you get down to it, that's still belief systems. Mm-hmm. Well, what if what if a man doesn't want to be the primary breadwinner? Or maybe if he wants to balance breadwinning and being a caregiver, whether it's for children or family, other family members, etc., maybe he wants to balance those more evenly. Um, men are kind of punished and they they get social shaming if they are not significant breadwinners just like women get the social shaming for not being the perfect supermom so those are issues that hurt everybody um, likewise there's you know a fair bit of research that shows that you know the stereotype that men must be strong and an emotional and tough it creates frankly one of the big contributors to men dying younger than men, than women because they stifle their emotions. They don't seek out healthcare of any kind. They're more likely to die of accidents, of drug overdose, of gun violence, things like that, because they're meant to be tough and risk takers. And, and that translates into, you know, a shorter lifespan in some instances. You know, when I think about, why do I say it's a human issue? Because nobody really wants to be defined by what society says, who they sh- basically, by how society says they should behave and what they should want out of life simply because of the identifiable genitalia they're born with. I mean, think about that. You know, that is really screwy in my mind. Just even stepping, stepping aside the fact that gender bias hurts men and women in different ways, but it hurts both of them. Let's just look at the economics of our workplace where women are not advancing to the top in equal numbers and they're not being given equal opportunity. That's a huge waste for the economic development of any society. Um, Women coming into the workplace in the 70s and 80s and early 90s in droves, that was a huge contributor to the growth in the GDP of the United States. And we see that in other countries. So stop holding women back and we'll all benefit economically. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, some of the research you just talked about is really fascinating. And I definitely didn't know that, especially with regards to men's health and how it has an impact on that. You said in your research that you studied female leadership and the lack of women in leadership positions. What do you think is is holding women back from like shattering the glass ceiling, as they say? And, and why are there not more female executives? Well, there's lots of contributors. I would, as a catch-all, I would just say that sexism is a system, an institutionalized system. So it's not individuals who are ill-willed going around intentionally keeping women down. I've Okay, I've met some of those people, but there's not, (laughs) most of them are not like that. Yeah. What it is, is instead, we live in a society, in societies across the world, but let's just focus on the US, where sexism is built into everything. It's built into the belief systems. It's built into, you know, it used to be women were property of their husbands, then they couldn't own property, right? In some countries, that's still true. You know, the rights and the expectations that they face are, you know, a lot of that has be those those laws have now just become social social beliefs that hold women in place. So we have this whole system that's working. And unless you, you know, it's not like it's just going to go away by itself. Unless you actively step out and and make changes to interrupt it, it's going to always fall right back into place. In other words, the system just keeps going. And and it's like trying to stop it is takes so, so, so much effort on so many different levels because built into it, we have unconscious bias. That's what my dissertation was on. We have the structure of work, the structure of the workday. Think about when children go to school in the morning, they go to school at like seven o'clock in the morning and they get out at two or 3 p.m. in most public schools. The workday is, you know, eight or nine to 5 p.m. And increasingly in our society, there's overwork. So many, many extra hours. Well, that system is set up to assume that there is a caregiver taking care of the children at home. Well, guess, then you layer that on social norms. Who is that going to be? Women, right? So you've got this system working together. So those, the, the nature of the way we think about work and the unencumbered perfect worker who's always available and the unencumbered perfect mom who's always available, they run dead center into each other. By the way, even for women that choose not to have children, people are walking around thinking, well, she'll have them eventually. And so they are subjected to those biases too. There's also lack of government support for women, homemakers, people who raise the children who actually, you know, will become workers and drive our economy. They don't get social security. When they're poor, they go on Medicare and Medicaid and they're and welfare. And then they're considered leeches on the system. Like, what? That doesn't make sense. They're contributing to the existence of our society. And they don't get credit for it. Why? Once again, because of ideas about the value of women's work, the historical norms around the roles that men and women play. So do you see how it all works together? Those things, they work together in ways that make it a real battle for women to advance and and layer on that those unconscious biases about women's competence. Women are assumed to be less competent than men at neutral and male type tasks. They're seen as less committed to their careers. 
they're seen as not good of a fit in organizations. And that contributes to an overall sense of, you know, they're a little bit riskier, higher promotion, and they have less credibility. And all those things make it really difficult for women to move up. Yeah. And you said that the like the Me Too movement has led to potentially hiring more women in, in male-dominated industries. Do you think that the Me Too movement has had a positive impact on society and, and moved us in the right direction in terms of gender equality? Yes, I do. And and the, what I was referencing about hiring more women was out in Silicon Valley where they've had a lot of Me Too and a lot of very, very bad <laughs> behavior um, <laughs> that was very – the bro culture – is yep. pretty toxic out there. And so a number of VC funds under very significant pressure, public pressure, have brought in more women partners. They're still in the tiny minority. Likewise, there's other industries like entertainment that, you know, you're seeing women replacing men in leadership positions where they previously had had men who've, you know, fallen to the Me Too movement. I think you haven't seen much of that in finance, you haven't mm-hmm. seen many claims of Me Too that are surfacing wildly in the press. And so I think it has a positive impact because it's created a lot of awareness. But the real proof will be in the pudding of what happens on the back of that. Will it be like the Anita Hill hearings where, yeah, people heard about sexual harassment, but nothing changed? Or will it, will this trend continue with more and more emphasis on not just dealing with sexual harassment, but having that translate into a broader understanding of what sexual harassment is about, which is about power over women and power over people. Men can be sexually harassed too, but it's, it's about power. It's a way of, as somebody said, a a student of mine who's worked in a lot of commercial kitchens, she's a graduate student from the hotel school. She said, sexism is, and sexual harassment is just a convenient way to put women down because they're women. You can put other people down by using racism, or you can put other people down by, you know, keeping control and power over others through different means. But if you're a woman, it's just a convenient way to do it. And so you have to empower women more broadly than just dealing with sexual harassment. And then sexual harassment, I think, will start to fall away because there'll be more women and more balance in the power above. Yeah. And I think something that stood out to me that you've said in a past lecture is that also, like, as women, it's important that we don't objectify men when we're in the workplace. So we don't, you know, see a man and say, oh, he's so hot or something like that and try and make sure that, you know, we're also trying to contribute to making this this problem better and go away. Yeah, you have to be careful of being hypocritical and I'm occasionally guilty of it. And I I love girl power and I love advancing that, but you also have to not take it to the other extreme where you know, I've heard a number of speakers talk about the female leadership advantage or women's leadership advantage and I think that there's merit in the idea of looking at the ways in which feminine styles of leadership can be very effective and even better in some contexts than male styles of leadership. But notice the way I'm saying that because a man can use a feminine style of leadership and a woman can use a male style of leadership. When it becomes a women's advantage, then you're just turning the tables and doing the same thing that people have been doing for centuries 
assuming men are better. And I don't like that. I don't think that that advances gender equality. Yeah, I totally agree with that. By the way, I should say I have an 11-year-old son who is a feminist. (laughs) And he keeps me honest on this stuff because when I make a comment, he'll be like, mom, you're being sexist against men. And it's good. It's made me truly and genuinely embrace the desire to work on these issues for everybody and not just women. Because to be fair, when I started out, I was more focused on women. Yeah. I still am, but because I think there's more work to do on behalf of women. But when I see sexism going the other way, I call it out too. Yeah, I think that's great. Another thing you mentioned in, in past lectures is that women don't often receive the same kind of constructive feedback as men do, usually because they're seen as fragile. And a lot of ways that prevents women from being successful. I personally find that men are reluctant to give me feedback, just frustrating because obviously then I can't improve as a product manager. So how can we do better in the workforce when when giving feedback to both genders? First, I'll give you a little advice for women. And I give a lot of advice for women, but I also sometimes say it's not really fair that women should have to carry this load. But <laughs> given the fear, the, the research, there's a fair bit of research that will show that, and actually a study came out at, sometime after the Me Too movement. I want to say it was McKinsey, but I'm not 100% sure that senior men said they were three and a half times more likely to give feedback to a junior man than a junior woman. And that links back to research that was prior to the Me Too movement that was similar. It wasn't quite as extreme in terms of the ratio three and a half times to one. But but reasons given by men of why they didn't want to give feedback is they were afraid women would cry or they were afraid that women would misinterpret what they were saying as sexual harassment or discrimination. So I think for me, in order to get feedback and what I advise to women to get feedback, especially more younger women, you really have to make yourself sort of a safe bet when you're interacting with that man. You need to say, look, I really, really genuinely want your feedback. I don't want just positive feedback. I want specific feedback. I need developmental feedback. It can be negative. And you know what? Women, we're, we're kind of socialized that, it's, that we're more likely to cry. If I do, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Like, yeah. you know, and try not to, or if you do, own that that's your responsibility and thank them for the feedback. So when you get negative feedback, don't be defensive. This is good advice for anybody, but particularly for women, if you feel emotional, that's okay. I mean, I've had people give me feedback more in a non-professional context, you know, like, (laughs) gosh, you got to, I'm the woman who will be like, you got to break up with that guy, like the honest feedback. (laughs) And it can be very upsetting, but you have to understand the courage and the compassion and the, that it, and regard that person has for you to be willing to put themselves out there like that and and give you honest feedback. So set it up in a way you have to ask for feedback repeatedly, try and make it a safe space for whoever it is, male or female, that's giving it to you. Likewise, men, you have a responsibility to give feedback that is not just equal in amount, but also equal in quality. And there's research that shows that the feedback that women receive tends to be more vague and nonspecific and more focused on their behaviors, where men get much more specific, tangible, and technical feedback, which is much more usable. You can do something with it. And so I think there's a role for organizations to coach people 
senior people on how to give feedback, what's appropriate in terms of being specific with examples, technically oriented. Behavioral feedback's fine, but it needs to give examples. And it needs to be equal in quality and quantity between both, both men and women. Definitely. And that what you just said definitely resonates with me because like I said, I feel like a lot of the feedback I get is is totally vague. It seems like people are afraid to hurt my feelings. And, you know, maybe like you said, maybe they will hurt my feelings, but like that's okay and, and I'll get over that. But I, I need to learn and I need that that technical concrete feedback in order to to grow in my career. You know, let me just add, have you heard of or read the book Radical Candor? I have not. I've heard of it, but I have not read it. Yeah, so it's to me, it's kind of funny. I, I love the concept. It when it when I first read about it and and heard the description, I was like, oh, that's me. That's my that's my communication style. And the idea is that you can communicate very directly or indirectly, and you can. And I'm very much simplifying this, so apologies to the to <laughs> to the concept. But um, and you can care a lot, and you can not care a lot. Well, someone who's communicating with radical candor in very broad terms, is someone who is very blunt and straightforward, but they're giving feedback from a place and in a way that demonstrates that they're doing it because they deeply care about the person. And so, as I said, I'm that friend who will tell you, gosh, that guy is really not good for you, or who will tell you, you know, listen, you have a lot of potential, but this one thing is really getting in your way at work. It can be really hard to hear feedback that isn't positive in a direct way, but it also helps you get better. And without that kind of feedback, you won't improve. And both research and experience suggest that men are much more likely to get that. And that becomes instrumental to them in advancing and moving up. Yeah. And so I'm going to jump topics here a little bit. You sort of mentioned some of your mentors earlier on in the podcast, but I'd love to hear again, who who are your mentors and, and what advice have they given you that you want to pass on to others who might be facing challenges that you've already overcome? So it's funny. Um, I, I did mention mentors, but I've had an, so many people that have helped me during my career, but I don't have sort of one or two people that are my go-to, I just call them as that are senior that I call to get advice as a mentor on a regular basis. Melissa Thomas Hunt, I would say while I was my, she was my doctoral chair, she was a great mentor. But since then, you know, we stay in touch, but, but she hasn't been a mentor to me, like on the corporate side. So different people have played different roles for me. So I can answer better the advice I've been given. And I've certainly had some people that have sponsored me. But again, they weren't necessarily mentors in that they weren't my go-to advice people. Frankly, the people that mostly have mentored me are some close girlfriends who are peers. And we look out for each other. So I'm not sure that quite counts. But in terms of advice... Definitely counts. I mean, it counts, but it's not the traditional, like, I have this tenure ahead of me. There were no women in private equity. So the guys were people that, if I needed advice, I could call on, but I was less likely to tap into that and more likely they would offer it and I would take it in. And then they certainly have been actively supportive supporting me as a sponsor in my career. Um, so, you know, I found women along the way, though, that have been just amazing in terms of supportive friends, which I guess is a, certainly a form of mentorship. 
In terms of advice, I would say there's a few pieces of advice that I, I get to give lots of advice to students, and I mentor quite a few. So I would say one of the first things that I've carried throughout my life and my career that served me well, I got from my parents, which is to be honest and have integrity. And that might sound really cliche, but I think about personal values and I talk about my values and honesty and integrity are right there at the very top of the list. And that has carried me very well because I've traveled in a lot of different circles and a lot of different careers. And your reputation is your greatest asset. And you only have that through having integrity and honesty throughout your career. The other thing I would say is under promise and over deliver. Now, I was raised as a bit of a perfectionist and I was a super pleaser. So I got that from that. It's sort of like never disappoint, never mess up. And and that's not who I am now. And it's not necessarily the, the best strategy in your whole life. But it was very, very good, especially in the first few decades of my career. And even now, I set expectations very clearly and I always meet them or beat them, whether it's on time or the quality or on the quantity. And I think those are good places to start from. Two guys who also are sponsors said to me at different points in my life, piece of advice that, that were coming from different places, but were really important to me, basically saying you need to recognize your value and you need to recognize how good you actually are. Like in other words, own your power and stop acting like you don't belong because you really do. And And when you act in a way, and this comes from being a woman and that kind of imposter syndrome of not being sure if I belong, when you act like you don't belong and you do, it's weird. People, you're fighting, for example, fighting for airtime when people really listen to what you have to say. So saying less and, you know, really stepping into your power and allowing other people more space can can actually be very powerful and help you kind of um, develop as a human. And I got that advice in at different levels and different times. And it was really important to me to, to have more presence as an executive and more gravitas because I needed them to tell me that, that I belonged. You know, I've, I've thought about imposter syndrome and researched it quite a bit just because, you know, just like, most people, I've definitely had it. And that I haven't heard that before. And I really, really like that because you're right. Sometimes you convince yourself so much that you don't belong and that you have to you have to fight so much to be heard when really like sometimes people are just hearing you and you don't have to fight like that. It's all in your head. You know, I've, I've been on the board of directors of seven publicly traded companies. And that's pretty unusual. I'm, I just turned 49. I've been on boards for 21 years now. And wow, that's awesome. And, you know, I can say a lot of it really was just lucky that I was in private equity and we bought large stakes in public companies because to to get on those boards is very difficult to get your first board. And the normal track is to be in the C-suite of a public company. And I've never done that. Or mm-hmm. it's to have been on other public boards and know other directors who can speak well of you and say, oh, she's a good director. And so because I got that experience very early on, I was able to establish my credibility with a number of men, all much older than me, who have recommended me for other boards. And I think it wasn't until board number six that I started to believe 
that I belonged in the room. And partly that was the first three I was appointed by CAPZ. And then after that, you know, one, I was brought on in a special circumstance. They really needed my M&A experience. And also, let's be honest, there's a lot of pressure for boards to bring on women and they want their token woman. And so I always had this doubt in the back of my head, are they bringing me on because I'm a woman or because they think I'm going to be a really good director? And at some point, I realized, who cares? I am a good director. And if they're getting me because I'm a woman and it turns out they get a good director, yay for them. But (laughs) either way, I know that I have experience and I have a lot to add in terms of value. And in the meantime, I'm getting the opportunity to be one of those women in the boardroom. So, you know, just get over it. And and it took me until, as I said, the sixth board that I was on to own my right to be there based on my credentials and my experience. Yeah. So in addition to that incredible accomplishment of being on several boards, what's another one of your greatest accomplishments? So you you had asked me that question in advance and I had to think about it. And it was a really hard question for me because you just called being on seven boards a major accomplishment. Well, I, I, in a way, yes, but it's sort of my life. And I got there because of a lot of other people recommending me and being in the right place at the right time. So not to take away my contributions. So I guess the way I would answer this is I don't feel like there's been one great, amazing accomplishment that I can point to. My life, I feel like, has been more of a series of smaller accomplishments. One that is profoundly important to me is having impact on a lot of students and people that I hired into private equity in important ways that I've heard about later. A huge accomplishment for me is that I show up for the people that I love and I care about when it matters, that I, that I speak my truth you know, in support of reducing inequality of all different kinds. And and so if I had to sum up the thing that probably I'm most happy about or is an accomplishment that has taken me courage was to unlearn the need for perfectionism and learn to accept that I don't need to be perfect because I never am going to be. And that allowed me to have the courage to make some really big transitions in my life in pursuit of crafting a life that is one that I love, that I'm happy with, and isn't necessarily defined by or led by what society says it has to be. And so today, you know, I recently just quit Cornell from teaching. I quit private equity and I had this amazing career that I love teaching students at Cornell. And I feel lucky and privileged to have done it. And I loved it. But I just left because I want to have a new chapter. And that new chapter is a combination of continuing to do board work, but really being much more active in speaking and teaching about gender inequality and diversity in in general. So, you know, all kinds of intersectionality and inequality while also being able to have time to be a really involved mom and a good friend and a good daughter and a good sister. I don't know, like I'm 49 and there'll be more chapters and my life isn't perfect, but it's one that I really love. 
And oh, and I also get to play as an entrepreneur. I'm an entrepreneur in residence, working with tons of companies, most of whom are current or recent graduates of Cornell. So I, I'm getting to craft the life that I love. And to me, that's a huge accomplishment. And I want to keep doing it. And it'll change. What I want will change. But I hope I keep having the courage to go after that. And I, I wish that for everybody. Yeah, I, I hope my listeners who who hear this, you know, can can take that from from this podcast and, and try and do the same and embody the same and really create the life that that they're excited and happy to live. So I think that's awesome. You know, people talk about can women have it all? And the answer is no. They cannot have everything all the time at one point and no can neither can men. And but but you know, I've been fortunate enough to be positioned in a place where I could try to craft the life I want. And I would just encourage within the bounds that people are born into and the limitations they have. And, and some, a lot of people have, didn't have parents that sent them to college and things like that. So I recognize there's huge barriers that I didn't face that other people might have, but within the bounds of what you can do, try to go after, after what you want. And, and try not to be defined and put in a box by society, whether it's a gender box or a race box or a income box or whatever, you know, whatever you were handed with when you were born. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Do you have any questions for me? No, I mean, I, um, I guess the one thing I would be curious about is what is the big accomplishment that you want out of this podcast? I, I'd say my number one goal from this podcast is that everyone who listens, doesn't matter their gender, doesn't matter their background, their age, any sort of demographic can really take one thing at least from each episode. So I've learned so much. I mean, you know, I have the advantage of having these conversations. It's, it's one of the few times in my life where I'm not looking at my phone. I'm not looking at my computer screen except to track the recording and everything like that. And it really allows me to fully dive deep into the conversation and, and hear what these incredible women and what you are saying. So I just hope that everyone can can learn from this in the same way that I feel I've learned so much and already applied a lot of my learnings to my my career to help me grow. So well, I think it's idea. fantastic you're doing this. I I certainly honor the mission of what you're doing, and uh, I'm happy to help however I can. Thank you. And thank you so much for your time. This has been awesome. And everything you've had to say has been incredible. Uh, Well, thank you so much. And thanks for having me. Check back soon for another episode of Boss Ladies. 